Today I'm speaking with Stephen Fry. Stephen is a comedian, actor, writer, presenter, voiceover artist, and activist. Some of his most well-known acting work includes A Bit of Fry and Laurie, Jeeves and Wooster, Blackadder, Kingdom, and the film V for Vendetta. He's also written and presented several documentary series, including the Emmy Award-winning Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive. Stephen's contributed columns and articles for newspapers and magazines, and written four novels and three volumes of autobiography. And he also frequently appears on British radio. And as you will soon hear, Stephen is just a wonderfully erudite man who fairly reeks of the most basic human decency. He really is one of the nicest guys in the world. And we cover a fair amount of ground. We discuss comedy and atheism and political correctness. There's a lot of talk about meditation and mindfulness. We talk about negative emotions, ambition, empathy, psychedelics. He was a close friend of Christopher Hitchens, so we speak about Hitch. And we cover much else. All I can say is that if you take even a fraction of the pleasure in Stephen's company that I did, you will enjoy the next two hours. And now I bring you Stephen Fry. I am here with Stephen Fry. Stephen, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sam, it's a pleasure. Um, a long-held ambition, finally realized. Oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, yeah, that's that's most mutual. First of all, I mean, in preparing for this and in just looking at, I mean, normally my experience is, you know, I invite someone on whose work I, I have absorbed because they've written one book or two books. I look into your bio and there is such a profusion of creativity. It is just ridiculous. You are a comedian, a writer. You've both written nonfiction and novels. You are a presenter of many different things. You are a voiceover artist. I, I just started listening to your Sherlock Holmes. I believe my daughter has listened to your voice more than the oh, right. <laughs> on through Harry Potter. How do you think of your own creative output? I mean, what, what, is one of your identities more locked up in one of these bins than, than another, or do you just float freely between them all? No, it's a good question, and I'm not quite sure of the answer. On any given day, I might give a different response. But generally speaking, I cleave to the truth that writing is the thing that gives me the deepest satisfaction. And indeed, the de the highest highs, you know, the most extreme feelings of whatever that creative impulse is, it doesn't mean that what you're writing is good, but the feeling you get from a, a sense of achievement in, in writing is, a, is the most, it's, it's bigger than the burst of applause on stage or anything like that. But where it all comes from, I've, I've no idea. I, my current theory is, is greed, essentially. I've accreted a lot of material that I've made and done in the same way that my body has accreted a lot of fat because I'm very greedy. Right. I can't help eating a lot. And the result is you'll get fat. And and if you're greedy to um, to write, to perform, to try all kinds of different things, and so in the end you, you, you have a, a subcutaneous layer of material that you can't quite believe, it does surprise me I've done so much. And I think, again, without sounding over-paradoxical, it may be a result of having no particular talent. I think if I were if I were really smart, if I were smart enough to be an academic philosopher or a, a, you know, a literary professor or something, I would have stuck to that. If, if I had any musical gift, I would have embraced that. If I 
really felt that I was a supreme actor rather than I would have stuck to finding good roles to, to play in films and TV rather than just sweeping up the odd unconsidered trifle. So it's it's, it's the advantage of being a jack of all trades and master of none. Rather all right. Than well, you're either you either lack self awareness or uh, you're guilty of false humility or <laughs> some combination of the two. And guilty of Britishness, which our, I'm sure our, we'll come to. Yeah, we will come to. Yeah, no doubt. So, but so as an as an actor, as a comedic actor, have you has Hugh Laurie been your your most frequent collaborator? Or yes, we we met at university when we we were both in our late teens, early twenties, and instantly hit it off. I, I sort of have described it before as like falling in love, only in a non non sexual or even bromantic way. Although there was a bromance, we're best friends, I guess. It was just an instant collaborative and creative fitting and meshing somehow we we just had the same sense of humor as much as anything i think especially when you're young because the young are very unforgiving and very knowledgeable unlike the older um <laughs> we absolutely agreed on what we hated in comedy and, and i mm -hmm. think you'll find that amongst adolescents and late adolescents when they're in a in a garage band it, it's as much they're doing this to piss off fans of x y or z style of music that they just hate can, um, that's can you, what powers uh, the young. Can you disclose your hatreds, or would well, you be trampling was, uh, on the uh, reputations I, of friends? And the obvious, I think. Actually, I mean, we were quite. We'd like to think we were quite advanced. I mean, we we used to write sketches in which we, which we never performed because they were almost too. We felt people didn't weren't as annoyed as we were by the cliche of the stand-up comedian. Even then, even back in the early 80s, there were starting to be these waves of comedians who were just... I remember creating one who was an American stand-up who, who uh, did this thing about being a, a, drug, a, a drug dog sniffer mm -hmm. and how that would be the greatest job in the world so that the stand-up comedian could be a dog and go, woo, right. and, and then could do sniffing because I thought it was such a crap, cheap, obvious, pathetic. Since that... Ten years later, I've seen comedians doing that right, same right, material. So, yeah. Hey, wouldn't that be a great gig? Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? You're a sniffer dog, for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah. You go, what? How is that funny? How right. isn't that the most base, pathetic? I mean, if someone can, can do it as a vague remark in a saloon bar in the right. evening, it is not worthy of professional comedy. And I suppose Hugh and I had a very high doctrine of what comedy should be. It, it should surprise and be unlike anything you'd ever heard before. Mm. And each generation will want to tear away what they see as the, the, the cliches and the, the sort of, sort of cookie-cutter approaches of the generation before. Do you feel that comedy does not age as well as many other products of creativity? Because I'm always mortified to go back to something I thought was hilarious, only yeah. to find that not only is it deeply unfunny, but I, I hate my former self for, 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 for having found it as funny as I, I did. I do know what yeah. embarrassment is, yeah. is the word which we may come back to. And, and I think there are some sort of golden jewels of comedy that you seem never to age. I mean, uh, I played to a, a godchild of mine not long ago, Bob Newhart, doing his driving lessons in Walter Raleigh. They still are just rock-solid right. pieces of work. Partly because I, I guess they slightly suggest a sort of Mad Men era of guy in a suit with a cigarette standing on a stage being kind of easy. But other than that, they don't really date. 
Whereas some early Steve Martin that I thought was the greatest comedy I ever heard, do you think, that wild and crazy guy isn't quite as wild and crazy as I thought he was. Right, right. And and maybe that's as it should be. And not only that, of course, comedian's age. And I I do think certainly sketch comedy, dressing up as a a bishop or a, a lawyer or a judge or something, is funnier when a young person does it. It's a bit like the school. It's a bit like doing an impression of your school teacher. Right. And when you're actually old enough to be a judge or a bishop, it's character acting. It isn't quite the same as the the sort of Pythonesque. The wonderful thing about seeing Python playing brigadier generals and, uh, and and bishops and things is that they're still in their 20s. Yeah. So I only met Hugh once very briefly, but he seems like an extraordinary nice guy. Yeah, he nice came to see you, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he, he's a big admirer of yours. Yeah, he, and, uh, he came to the, uh, the event I did with uh, Steve Pinker. That's right. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so that was, that was great to meet him. So you and I met at uh, Hitch's memorial. Mm. I'm surprised it took so long for us to meet because we were in similar yeah. circles for a while as yes. voluble atheists. <laughs> but, I was the groom to the four horsemen. Yeah, that's right. Or the ostler, just sort of holding the reins. Yeah. <laughs> off you go, sirs. You go and gallop off and spread the news. I'll be back here with a, with a point for you when you're on your way back. Well, yeah. So, so, that, so I should probably flag that at the outset here. So the nominal pretext for our conversation is that we're releasing the book version of the conversation, the Four Horsemen conversation that Hitch, Richard Dawkins, Dan Dennett, and I had in 2007, uh, which um, was recorded happily, really was recorded as an afterthought. We, we almost did it. We just got together in, in Hitch's apartment. and Yes, filmed in his DC apartment. Yeah, wasn't it? yeah. yeah. And it was, I was surprised to realize that that was actually the only conversation the four of us ever had. It's counterintuitive even to me, but, you know, yes. you know in, knowing my own life, but I'm sure it will be counterintuitive to the people who, who hear this. And so we, anyway, we um, refined the transcript of that conversation and then each wrote introductory essays and you were generous enough to write a forward to it. And so that's coming out in, I believe, March. Obviously, it's available on... Um, Amazon now for pre-order, and and we're you know shamelessly plugging this here. All the all the proceeds go to the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, which I believe is now joined at the hip with the center with it, the center. It for is Inquiry. indeed. They yeah. very kindly gave me an award at Las Vegas this year, so oh, nice. I, nice. I went to meet. But yeah, they've they're fused. Yeah, as as one body. Well done. And and it's worth remembering that uh, at that time you four were you were characterized as the new atheists. There was this idea of a new atheism, a rather more intellectually rigorous, open, free-thinking, unafraid way of addressing secularity, humanism, and the burdens and, uh, and, and, and torments that religion was imposing on the world. And 2007 isn't that long ago, and yet we have to remember that's the year the iPhone came out. It's right. the year Twitter came out. You know, this is, a lot has changed since then. And, and it's fascinating to hear and watch you, you four talking about the world and wondering whether this has been made irrelevant by the, so, the rise of social media and the rise of all the things that have risen since then. But actually, one finds that, um, as I think I say in the introduction, that the t- talking about religion and the dangers of accepting religion or being bound by religion or allowing religious doctrine to inform policy and, uh, and, and to be sort of unquestioned in, 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 the, in government and the world, that, that the dangers of that, are as apparent now as they were then, and they actually leach out outside, and things become a subset of religion in a way that are just as important. 
the same kind of heresies and blasphemies, uh, no longer pertaining to God and Jesus and Allah, but uh, obtaining to gender politics and to all kinds of other issues now. Mm. And we're still in the same position of, of thinking, gosh, there, there, is, there, is still, there, there are still inquisitions, there are still utter defaits, you know, that, that there, you see people falling, tumbling, disgraced because they've said something heretical yeah foolish and and it's actually greater now than it was in 2007 that the power of religion was still strong then and the church in particular the roman church and but also evangelical christianity in this country in the united states where we're speaking was was on the rise the tea party and all those things were beginning mm. to happen but yeah i wouldn't count religion out just no, yet i think i mean the, we, we see the pendulum keep swinging but yeah you you're you're right to see the parallel with this new orthodoxy of Political yeah. correctness, which was, you know, was, has always been a term and a concept, at least in for the last few oh, decades. But yeah. this is really a front on which Hitch is so dearly missed. I mean, it's, it's, oh, I've, I've, on more than a hundred occasions, I'm sure I have thought, man, wouldn't it be great for yeah. Hitch to respond to this? So this, it's so <laughs> this horror that just appeared. I'll get to the free speech stuff. Actually, I just want to reference something that you wrote in your forward to the book, which caught my eye now that I've uh, spent some time in the mindfulness minds producing a meditation app. <laughs> uh, you wrote in your description of me, you described me as being, quote, proficient in forms of meditation that an Englishman of my caste finds incomprehensible and deeply embarrassing. I can't even say the word mindfulness without blushing. Uh, so that... So, so, and it's so true. Now, that. of course, I'm in the terrible problem, Sam, that I'm hearing your voice and your voice because I have subscribed you kindly uh, showed me how to subscribe to right. your, your waking up course of right. meditation and mindfulness, and I've subscribed to it, and I've been obediently following through. And your voice now has, has a very special place in my head because it's that irritating voice, which you're fully aware of. Right. You flag this, right. that just as one's mind is beginning to spin off into a nothingness or whatever it is that as one concentrates on one's breathing and obeys the uh, instructions you're giving, there's a nice silence and in there's an inhalation and an exhalation. And then, damn it, your voice comes in again and plucks one up. Right. Uh, and, and as you're aware, it can be it's something one's got to get used to because my instinct is simply to fall asleep. Mm. <laughs> the moment you start, I start concentrating on my breathing, I'm falling asleep. And, and I know meditation and sleep aren't the same thing. No, no, both are good, but they're, they're distinct. <laughs> yes, they yes. indeed. Yeah. But I, no, I'm very fascinated by this and fascinated by your role in this because, yes, I am embarrassed by words like mindfulness because I'm not quite sure what they mean, and that's an embarrassment. It gives me an awkwardness. Is perhaps a hmm. uh, kind of uh, similar word, uh, um, syn not quite synonymous, but close to it. But it's I even came across wellfulness the other day, which uh -huh. made me oh, laugh I, a great I, deal. I haven't heard that one. No, that, that <laughs> embarrasses even me. Yeah. And one used to use the word to be mindful, to be aware, and so you know, awareness is, as we know, is an Anglo-Saxon ver version of conscious. So we're talking about right. consciousness, awareness, uh, heightened consciousness. I've always, I remember having a big row with John Cleese once about that. He nearly stalked out of a restaurant because I, I genuinely said to him, I don't understand how you can have levels of consciousness. What, what are they? What is a higher level of consciousness? Does it mean I am seeing the red as redder or hearing the music more keenly or understanding a situation more accurately with greater acuity? How, how what are these levels? And I'm a very, very empirical person, and I, I love to see how things are true. 
and, and with mindfulness and let me just be a, a devil's advocate with sure, you. I'm, I love I'm that, not going yeah. to attack you. I, know, no, no. I really, I've got great Please. value already out of your course and I'm finding it fascinating. But I think we, we all know that brain training games have been found to have zero applicability as far as actually improving the brain is concerned. They might make you slightly better at the game you're training at. So, yeah. for example, yeah. whether it's a crossword or it's a memory game or something, you're better at the, the crossword and better at the memory game. There may be some slight advantage in delaying forms of dementia by playing these games, which again, I mean, that makes rational sense, but there may be empirical evidence, epidemiological evidence that that works. But I am puzzled to think that you make claims for, for meditation, for example, that have that it has cognitive effects. And I, 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 you know, I did a, I went documentary series going around America. I remember when we were in Iowa, I went to this town in Iowa, which is owned by um, Transcendental Meditation people. Right. They have a university there. And I went to interview them and they covered me in electrodes mm -hmm. and uh, tried to baffle me with science about alpha and you would say theta, we'd say yeah. theta in English. But, you know, waves and I'm, I'm aware of this, that you can be in a position of such concentration and relaxation at the same time that you can probably think off the top of your head a thousand uses for a paperclip, which are creative and amusing, which someone who's trying too hard wouldn't be able to. It's, it's a bit like the, the, the salmon, um, if a live salmon is, is, is what an idea is and what, what a thought is. And, and if you try and clutch it, it's because it's alive and it's wet, it slips mm -hmm. out of your grasp. But if you hold it just right, you know, <laughs> and, and that's what I know some of the claims of meditation are that, that they allow this simultaneous relaxation and concentration. And, and I think that's, that's it's good. And I like the idea of it. But I've always been propelled by, as I say, by greed and by ambition and by all the sort of darker sides of kind of lust and awkwardness and embarrassment, as I've said, that, that drive one to a fascination with things. And mm. the very torment and difficulty of a human mind and its need for things and its greed for things has been for me what energizes and what makes me who I am. And I see I've always had this terrible fear of almost anything, whether it's a pharmaceutical or psychoanalytical, psychotherapeutic, or, or to do with meditation, has seen it as a kind of zombifying, a kind of taking mm. the edge off my mind. I want my anger. The seven deadly sins to me are, are the seven deadly propellants that, right. or the, the fuel that, 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 that get me forward in life. And I know that's nonsensical. And I know that- No, you... no, it's not nonsensical at all. There's truth to, to many mm. of those claims. I think, let's, let's take the first piece. So yeah, the research on the benefits of training, even mm. forget about just mental training, this is even true of physical training, suggests that you get better at what you train very specifically. And, and in many cases, there's much less of a transfer effect than you'd expect. And this, again, this can be true even of you know, physical training in a gym. It's like yeah. you, you get stronger in precisely the ways in which you exercise. And people who you know, could be just hulking with muscle and look like you know, fantastically strong you know, athletes, if you put them in a paradigm that has to be working the same muscle groups, but it's not the way they train, 
Yes. They're not nearly as impressive as they Hence are. It's cross-training. You know, and, and exactly. And that's, what, that's why yeah. people mix it up you know, endlessly yeah. to be, be very well-rounded athletes. And the same is true of the mind. So as you say, if you, if you train, if you do these brain training games that work, you know, some aspect of working memory, say, well, you get better at that particular task, but you're not, it doesn't transfer into the rest of your intellectual life. And, or at least there's no evidence that I'm aware of that it does at this point. And we should also just acknowledge that meditation can mean many different things. There are different yeah. types of meditation. And so people can be training different things under that guise. But with mindfulness, what you're training is the very thing you want more of, arguably, once you understand how it, how it yeah. can function in the, the economy of your emotional and yes. cognitive life, which is you're becoming more aware of the dynamics of your own mental suffering, just the way in which being captured by thought moment to moment is leaving you hostage to whatever the contents of those thoughts are. And once you learn you know, there's some modicum of mindfulness, you're you actually see there's just a, there's a choice between being lost in thought, and by lost I mean thinking without even being dimly aware for those moments or minutes or hours that you're thinking. It's very much like being asleep and dreaming, right? Yeah. You're just you're just you're just ruled by your thoughts, and then you're just laid bare to whatever emotional and behavioral implications are there. So you're you know you're angry, you're sad, you're saying the life deranging and relationship deranging things you say as an angry or sad person to your spouse or whoever. And mindfulness simply gives you the ability to, if nothing else, choose how long you want to be angry or sad for, really. Because yes. you, like, you can just punctuate that wheel works of reactivity and pause, if only for a few moments. And, and those pauses can be enormously beneficial. Now, to your point about, I guess, classically negative emotions being a source of creativity and energy, I think that's true for many of us some of the time. I th but I think it's easy to either just, in a delusory way, make a virtue of necessity there. I mean, the, those yeah. of us who are ruled by negative emotion are finding some silver lining to them, right. whereas mostly they're just a source of suffering that would be great to get rid of. I mean, if you could put on one hat which would allow you to feel the optimum motivational component of one, positive emotions that you're not tending to feel, and two, you could titrate your negative emotions just to like their creative mm. optimum, but then not suffer whenever you didn't feel like suffering, right? If there's some yeah. happy balance there, you might understand that very few of us find it just by accident. Because like, if you can't be mindful, if you can't notice the next thought arise and capture your conscious yes. life for moments or minutes or hours you are simply living out the consequences of your past conditioning and your mm. you know you're just who you were yesterday you're like there's no there is actually no choice to make whereas if you train this particular skill again the awareness of the process and an ability to step back can give you another degree of freedom. And if, if it is just, listen, this is, it's good to be angry for the next 10 minutes because <laughs> that's how I'm going to write this scene. Well, then, then use it that way. Yeah. Yes. And I wouldn't want to overstate the values of, uh, of, of what we tend to call negative emotions like anger and fear and so on. I suppose, I, I remember once I was filming years ago and uh, the Maggie Smith, the wonderful Maggie Smith was in it. And we were in a sort of typical English country house and there were fields around it. And she looked, and in that very Maggie Smith way, she looked at these cows. 
She said, don't they ever get bored? And it was a sort of funny remark, but I also thought that's a very obvious, profound remark. Children must think that. There's a cow in a field. And if we project ourselves into that cow for just a minute, we are absolutely, absolutely distraught with boredom. We, the idea that all we have to do is haul these calories into our interior, mm -hmm. cropping grass, never stopping, always standing up, occasionally looking around, bits of rain fall on you and then you wander around and you, know, have a, you break wind and then you drop a cow pat and then you move on and that's your day. There's no books, there's no television, there's no conversation, there's no imagining. There's... Haven't they, though, achieved the absolute height of mindfulness? They have, they, they're concentrating purely on being a cow. They're achieving their cowness 100% of the time. What mm. it is when you're a human is that we are constantly feeling we're falling short of what we should be, that a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for, hmm. Browning rather wonderfully put it. Yeah. We're constantly, there's something else up on the hill. It's both mad, and we know it's mad, because whenever we get to the top of the hill, we want another hill to climb to. And, and, and you know, Alexander wept when he saw there were no more, no more kingdoms to conquer, whatever yeah. phrase it. Yeah. But at least I'm not a cow, you know. And yet we I look. Think, didn't Caesar also weep when he contemplated how much Alexander had conquered? Yes, exactly. Oh, there's always going to be envy as well. But, you know, and at their best, you look at an animal. I always think of the Amazonian tree frog I once encountered. And its face was just, it's like, like the face of someone you fell in love with when you just briefly gl glanced them getting onto an underground train and never saw them again for the rest of your life. But you always know they were the one, you know. And this tree frog was standing, you know, with an arm on one branch and an arm on another, legs open, with an enormous grin on its face. And I remember thinking, you know, you don't, as a tree frog, you never wake up in the morning thinking, was I a good tree frog yesterday? And I felt, oh, I, was, I let myself down. I let my family down. Oh, I'm going to have to apologize to someone tomorrow morning. We can be pretty sure they don't think that. They, what they are is 100% of the time fully realized as a tree frog. They fully achieve their destiny. And we don't. We never do. And if I met someone who had, I would just think they were just like some joke, you know, smiling Buddhist who always just gave me the truth in reverse all the time. You know, ah, you must not sit down on the sofa. You must let the sofa stand up on you. I bugger <laughs> off. I'm not interested. Go away. Don't talk nonsense. And, you know, that we're actually annoyed by placidity by the cow in the field. It, when mm. we meet it amongst humans, we think, come on, where's the juice, the bite, the vinegar, the fun, the snap. And again, I am definitely being de de devil's advocate here. I'm, I'm not saying that I ge genuinely, I genuinely don't disparage these ideas of mindfulness. And I'm fully aware that unhappiness in its wider forms, as we all know, the epidemiology on suicide and self-harm that is sweeping our culture is huge. Although, again, there's a lot of misreading of those data. You know, WHO will tell you that there is no higher instance of depression in uh, the so-called developed world than there is in the undeveloped world. That actually is pretty even. Uh, that we, Interesting. We, I feel like that's been we've been propagandized with another message recently. Exactly yeah. that we we must be guilty, and because we live in an emotionally constipated, difficult, bad, awful culture that needs released into a nice, sweet world of friendliness and you know, yeah. and empathy. And I I agree with that. But then I see empathy as coming from exactly things like embarrassment. Embarrassment are a result of empathy. You, you're embarrassed for other people when you see them making a mistake. 
because embarrassment is, there's one's own shame, pudeur, whatever word you want to use, that one can feel about one's naked state, mm. one's desires, all the things that we're ashamed of in, inside, the, you know, the, the primal genesis, you know, you were naked, we were naked and we were ashamed, we say to God, you know. But there's the, the real embarrassment is the embarrassment you feel for other people when you, I think, it's a form of real empathy to, to, to feel awkward about others. That's why I can't watch any reality TV. I'm just yeah, mortifying. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> I cannot bear seeing people put in that position, even if they're happy or, or clearly believe they are and think they've triumphed. I just want, I, I weep. For, yeah. It's a, it's strange. I can't I have, explain. I have it. a problem watching ice skating. Oh, the, the failures in ice skating, I find more painful than anywhere in athletics because the mismatch between what was gracefully being accomplished a moment before and what happens when they splatter all over the ice. Yes, that it's, is uh, true. It's just ghastly. I, I, yeah, that's it. But that, it is. So, do you know Paul Bloom's work on empathy? I've heard of it, but I don't know it. Yeah, I know well, it's, well, yeah maybe we'll touch that in a second because mm. it's, it's fascinating. To come back to your point about the cows, the mindful cows, no one who studies mindfulness or, or who gets deep into the practice thinks that, that mere placidity like, yeah. I mean, and certainly not bovine placidity <laughs> is an exemplar of the practice. And this is actually a misunderstanding that you can persist for a long time while one's practicing. It's not really passive. I mean, there's something very active mm. about mindfulness because you are keenly aware of the actual character of your experience in a way that you're tending not to be in every other moment. I mean, the moment where you're consumed by thought where your reach is exceeding your grasp, mm. tends to be a moment where you are actually not, your attention is, is bound up by thought and reactivity and prejudice, you know, and in ways where you're not actually cognitively and emotionally available in all kinds of other ways that you could recognize the, va the value of and the rewarding nature of if you could inhabit that band of consciousness long enough. So I mean, just like socially, like when you are in, in the mode of your ambition in relationship to other people, there are all kinds of experiences you're not having with other people that if you could have them, you'd, you might recognize they're actually preferable, right? So like yes. if you're, when you're ambitious, when there are many things you desire, you walk into a room with a bunch of other people and they're beginning to function like props in your world where I mean, you, you either have to get around them, you have to use them, they all have kind of mm. instrumental value. If somebody is incredibly wealthy, that may be relevant to you. If you are a, you know, a fundraiser or you have something, if, if, that, if that completes part of the puzzle of your own ambition, you, know, you begin yeah. to see people at, in ways which are, again, instrumentalizing of them. And it, it makes you unavailable to actually connect in ways that you would otherwise connect if mm. your attention were free of, well, of your own desire. Can I do a bit, a bit simpler in a way? Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about body-mind or body-brain, and obviously that's a whole thorny issue about brain and mind, but let's just say for the moment they're roughly the same yeah, thing. Yeah, sure. If, I, if someone's been to the gym, if someone has bodyfulness, if someone runs and goes to the gym and is brilliantly trained and very fit, I can see it straight away. Yeah. And, and what's more, I can go upstairs with them, next to them, and I'm puffing at the top of the stairs and they aren't. There's so many obvious signs of their superiority and of the achievement that their training has given them. It's just apparent. Yeah. Now, can you say to me that we can have a random test in which I meet 20 people and I will be able to see straight away which 10 of them 
have had mindfulness training and which 10 haven't. If there are just a random bunch of people, is there some equivalent to that? My God, look at what they can lift. Look how fast they can go up the stairs without getting out of breath. Look at what they, their balance. Look at the physical achievement they've made through all this training. Can I yeah. see that? Well, in the extreme, Or is one only comparing it with oneself? Well, the comparison to oneself, provided one does enough training, that can be, in the end, all the comparison that one needs. Matters, I mean, that, yes, that, that can of course, be I see that. But I just wondered, yeah. just purely yeah. as, a, as, a, as a... I would argue it's a false standard. I mean, the truth is, in the extreme case, yes, it, it can become apparent. You can meet extraordinary examples of stability in this kind of practice or, or related practices like loving-kindness practice, where you meet yeah. someone who's just trained up this one style of relating to other people where they're just they've been meditating for years on wishing others you know strangers anyone anyone you know all conscious beings like a, actually a, a Greek, to be free you, of demonism a kind, yeah a kind of just giving yeah. out of so okay. there's just yeah there's just yeah. A, a kind of a surplus of good intention that you can you yeah. can feel and that's from something people. that's not innate in that characteristic but that they have trained themselves to yeah to, to, yeah. yeah and you can train you know you can train it yourself i mean there obviously there are pharmacological examples of the, these kinds of changes. Like mm. People who take MDMA know what it's like for the span of eight hours to feel... Have you ever, have you ever done any psychedelics? Yes, and, and you've only once had to take LSD for it to right. be with you for the rest of your life. It's the effect that it can have on one's... You know, all those Huxley um, right. <laughs> kind of things about the doors of perception are lamentably well, true. One well, does let's, let's talk about that for a second. So, so, yeah. the, so you've taken... You, when did you take LSD? Not for, I mean, decades ago, but right. I remember almost... The entire, it was like over a weekend with some friends, and it was extremely profound and remarkable experience. And it, Was it extremely positive, or was it mixed positive It was positive, positive one tiny moment when I was alone at one point where I got terribly, terribly afraid and had a right. recursive image in my head that wouldn't go away, and which was beginning to frighten me, and I was tumbling down it, but I was brought out of that. But that was an important part of it. And, and I remember all the, you know, there's, I'm, I'm never quite sure the difference between them, but to liquidity and hexity. <laughs> The thisness and thatness of, of things. And you know, one would look at one's fingernail and see the fingernailness of a fingernail and, the, and, and how extraordinarily fingernaily it was. And, and, mm. it, it, and, and I, I felt as doing it that I would never lose that, that I would be able to, 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 to bring back this way of looking at things so that I could see the grain and the, the absolute whatness of them. And, and that, that was a very valuable an extraordinary experience, mm. and and it chimed with everything I'd read, and then continued to read from people like Butler Huxley, and and I guess to some, to, to, to some extent. To All right, so so let me ask you. So so theory. imagine the 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 most normative component of that experience, or the place in that experience where, if you could maintain that mm. state of consciousness, you would say, okay, well, that's obviously more fulfilling, more drenched in clarity or meaning mm. than the experiences I'm tending to have, say, two things to notice about that. One is that there's not necessarily anything someone could have noticed about you from the outside that would have advertised that state of consciousness, especially well. No. Right. So you would have just been sitting on a couch they staring at your fingernail. Saying, wow, and slightly it's too much. Me, 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 yeah, yeah, more yeah, than yeah, I usually exactly right. ever would. Wow, yes. this man likes his fingernails. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of wowing, <laughs> but no, you're right. right. There's no, no, no other, other difference other than this absolute openness to, to the yeah. experience, especially of the senses. I mean, every one of them. So the, the, the coldness and the wetness of water in the mouth and uh, as well as the you know, sight of flowers and all the cliches, you know, which reminded me of my, 
I think we can all remember times, if we're lucky at least, uh, in adolescence in particular, where we are become convinced, convinced in a quite solipsistic way that only we really see how beautiful a dawn is or, or an animal or a flower or nature or love and that, that, that we are particularly privileged to have this access to the staggering beauty of everything. And, and it, it overwhelms us and, and it's, a, it's a very teenage thing. And as a teenager, I didn't want to lose it. I was aware uh, it, it, it's a different sort of consciousness, a more intellectual consciousness or one that had done a lot of reading precocious kind of consciousness, I was aware that this would pass, that this was a phase. Right. I had read enough autobiographies and uh, spiritual yeah. autobiographies of, of writers and poets and things to know that, yeah. that this would leave me. And I felt savagely that I never wanted it to. And of course, I always believed that art, art and music in particular, were, were pathways to, 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 to retaining that. Mm. So, you know, if I listen to a Schubert sonata or something, I'm, it's an instant access straight away to, to these profound feelings and revelations, this terrific sense of the beauty and the, the majesty and the glory, as well as the, the, the fear of uh, uh, the power of the way things are at, the, at an atomic level or at a great sort of huge natural level. You, you, you'll know. Anybody listening yeah. will know that. Yeah. We don't talk about it much because it's embarrassing. Uh, slightly, because it's yeah, sort yeah, of more, effusive. More, and, uh, more for Englishmen, I think. Yeah, it is, yeah. probably yeah. is, yes. Yeah. Which is why I, th I suppose they become poets. It's why Keats is so Keats and Shakespeare is so Shakespeare, because because they have to find a way, <laughs> because they're not allowed to talk like that in the pub. <laughs> so, yeah, not to give a false impression here, the, so the, what I'm saying about LSD is mm. not that the experiences one tends to have on LSD are exactly like the, no. what the goal is of, of kind of sustained mindfulness but there's a, f a few lessons to draw there one is that no matter how glorious that experience has yeah. been for for many of us who have taken those drugs there's not necessarily an outward sign there's no physical aura right. that says yeah. ah i see yeah. you have taken that yeah and if, i mean you no. can you know yeah. you know those of us who have related to people in those states recognize that if you interact with them long enough you begin to see that mm. like more or less vivid signs of the, that they're state of mind is transformed, but it can be very subtle. And depending on your, how your attention is bound up and how you view other people, you may not notice anything out of the ordinary at all. But also the other point is that there's nothing that your brain is doing on LSD or any other drug that your brain in principle isn't capable of doing without those drugs. Because I mean, if you just look at yes. the, the pharmacology of any drug, all a drug does is mimic the behavior of existing neurotransmitters or cause those neurotransmitters mm. to be in the synapse longer or, or, or less long. There are not many levers in the brain for a drug to pull, and they're all part of the brain. So I, you can be fairly confident that whatever experience anyone has had on any drug, there's somebody somewhere who's had a very similar experience without any drug, right? Yes. Just, you just, whether oh, they, absolutely. Based and on neurological injury or... William you know. Blake, which is why you know, poets and mystics like that were so appealing to the first generation to discover drugs like LSD, yeah. to, you know, to the Timothy Learys and the Huxleys and so on, was because they thought this, people have been there before. They have pulled back this membrane or they've, they've entered this tunnel and they've seen things that this drug is allowing me to do it. Now they've done it through their own their own insight or their own uh, ability to let go and whatever it might yeah. be, or, or indeed their own discipline, their own craft. I mean, if, if, if I, to, to me, 
I remember when I first write, read the four words of Whitman as a teenager, which I couldn't understand as words, but which hit me like a lightning bolt. I sing the body electric. Mm -hmm. It's a famous line. Yeah. It's a cliche almost. Yeah. But to, to me, that rattled, did everything. of many that it, acid trips, yes. But it, anything that an acid trip could do, but also a mindfulness experience or a, a meditation period, is I, I would stare at those words and then my mind would go through, why do they have this effect on me? What is it meaning? Who am I connecting with? Who else feels like this? Who was this man? And by penetrating poetry or art or music, I'm getting all the benefits of mindfulness, but they're not solipsistic or egotistical because they involve learning about this other person who's given it to me. Who was this Schubert? Who was this Wagner? Who was the, oh, it doesn't matter who, who, who Jimi Hendrix or Duke Ellington, it doesn't matter who, who, what sort of art it is, but you know, that you're actually learning, you're getting cultural, social history, racial history, European history, uh, all kinds of uh, incredible histories, as well as technique and craft of prosody and poetic writing and music and chord shifting. And, and how do all these things m make me feel so extraordinary? And it, 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 it's, it's a full-on investigation rather yeah. than sitting cross-legged yeah. looking at my omphalos right. and, uh, and wondering about myself. Because I've always felt this powerful counterintuitive thing that the, the, the less one inspects oneself, the more rewarding it is to oneself. And right. that's one yeah. of my fears, if yeah. you like, or embarrassments about meditation is that it's a, bit, it's a bit egotistical. It's a bit vain and therefore not helpful. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with being vain and egotistical, except well, no, there, usually well, there is a lot yeah, wrong yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, there is. No, <laughs> yeah. no I would, well, so again, I think that's a, a misapprehension of the project. First, I would say is that mindfulness is definitely not a surrogate for all of the other things you just mentioned. No, I mean, and it's, it's you, not you the do same. mention that in your, in your films and, uh, you know, in your t talks and, uh, right. and so on. I mean, so it is just not, it's yeah. not a replacement for being artistically creative or appreciating the creativity of others. I mean, those yeah. are just separate yeah. things to do. Now, it's not incompatible with those things. You can be mindful and do all of those things, uh, you know, while being mindful. That's, that's also true. You can, and I would argue that you'd be more appreciative of many of the products of your own creativity or others because you can actually pay attention. Because you're just not as distractible, mm. right? So it's, it is, yes. you know, the distraction is the enemy of everything we want to pay attention to, whether it's our own creativity, a movie we're trying to watch, a yes. telephone call that we're, you know, or, or, you know, we're on the phone with our mothers or whatever, and we're losing the train of her thought because yeah. what we're multitasking. So you and I, yeah. and I bet most people listening would agree that if we could bottle concentration, if we, if we could yeah. learn how to just instantly zoom in and focus on the job that has to be done without having to look out of the window for half an hour first or traipse around the room or go off to drive and pick up some eggs and milk and come back again and then face the right. dreaded blinking screen or whatever it is, the, the job, then yes, the distraction. And, and that actually is one of the primary mm. skills that is transferable from meditation because meditation is the ability to pay close attention to any arbitrary object, right? Yes. So if you say, stare at that water bottle for five minutes, somebody who really knows how to meditate, who has trained it as a skill, can stare at it and be one-pointed enough such that not much else is happening, right? So if the goal is to just keep eyes on the water bottle, 
and, and, and attention on the, you know, inwardly on the water bottle, that is an impossible task for most people. It becomes increasingly possible the more you learn to meditate. So then swap out that water bottle for anything else, you know, the, I, the, the, the laughing face of your child, right? When you have your smartphone competing for your attention, but your child is there and you've got this one opportunity to, yeah. to pay attention. We're constantly faced with this, this triaging of yes. our attention in our lives. And it is the one thing we ne never get back. I mean, to the, how we use each moment of attention is how we used it. And we don't know how many more we have left. And so it's an increasingly precious skill to be able to prioritize how we use our attention. And even when we have decided, okay, now I'm going to sit down and write for an hour, or now I'm going to just enjoy this documentary that my friend has been recommending for mm -hmm. months. And we find that even within the frame of those, those activities, we are disposed to multitask. It's like yes. it's, still, it's still tempting to check your email even this while you're really watching the documentary. Point, Sam. You're absolutely right. And you make this in one of the lessons in the course I've been doing of yours about, about this fact, you know, when did you last sit down and read a book for an hour without turning to your phone, without, you know, with, in full concentrated mode? Or, and not just a book, because that sounds like these books are good medicine, but even, even binge-watching a TV show that yeah. you promised a friend you will see. I can't even do that. I, 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 I load up my iPads and things for a long flight. I, I came from London last week. Uh -huh. and, and I always think, oh, yes, I'll, I'll get these episodes of this, and I'll watch Buster Scruggs, and I'll watch them. I'd be meaning to watch Fargo 3. And, and, and I sit on the airplane, and I think, meh, I can't really, I don't, meh, <laughs> no. And it's partly, you wonder if it's the, the sweet shop or candy store, as you would say, mentality of a content provision now is, is such that everything is available and we just become, Einstein had a great uh, phrase and he, he always wore the same clothes, you know, like, like Steve right. Jobs always wore his turtleneck and his yeah. Levi's. Einstein always wore the, the same, I mean, not, not literally identical, but he just had the same type of tweed jacket in his wardrobe. There were seven of them, and seven identical tops, seven identical trousers and someone said to him, why, why, Albert? And he said, I want to avoid option paralysis. Yeah. This is a yeah. great two-word phrase to describe this, option paralysis. It's where we are paralyzed by the fact there are so many things we can choose. And if we don't have the ability, as you say, to, to lose, to, for everything else to go out of focus and, and to be sharp on that one thing that we need to, either for pleasure or for practical purposes, we need to concentrate. If we can't do that, yeah. And we have definitely lost really strongly, haven't we? So it's, it's not even about happiness and strain and stress. It's about practicality in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, although I would argue they're of a piece because when you look at the, the source of unhappiness, the source of regret, the source of anxiety, it is always the dynamic of our being captured by thoughts of past and future automatically, as though there's, there was no option to do otherwise. You know, you have dinner with someone and you'll leave with this lingering feeling that, you know, the conversation didn't go all that well. You, you, you know, wish you had not said that self-serving thing that provoked the look on, on her face that, you know, you, you thought was somehow um, a, a, a contemptible. Yeah. So you, how long do you hold on to that? There's yeah. a, there's a lesson to be learned. I wouldn't say that we should be bovine in our lack of availability to that sort of, you know, yeah. self-concern and, and, you know, self-scrutiny and a desire to be better next time, right? I think that's all. We want to remember experiences insofar yes. as it's valuable for the next moment, but think of how long we hold on 
to the residue of bad experience or, or just mediocre experience and, and the self-judgment and the yeah. concern about next time that gets built up. And, and of course, we know that the, the, the person we're thinking we have affronted by not responding well enough to what she said at that dinner party, she will be thinking something completely right. different. Yeah. She won't be thinking that we were completely... Yeah, well, that's that's the, somebody's line. I mean, everyone is, is so busy thinking about themselves, they don't have time to think about you. I mean, that's you can take some refuge in that, yeah, but... Exactly. I wonder what you thought about... I, I, I wrote the second part of a trilogy I'm doing on Greek mythology at the moment, and the second one involves the heroes, and I was writing about the different heroes, Heracles and Theseus mm -hmm. and Perseus and Jason and Bellerophon and Atalanta, and so on. They're all, they're all pretty well known, the, the great Greek heroes of myth, and, and I was pondering on the, the qualities. And I'd always assumed that my favorite was Theseus because he was the kind of wittiest and smartest of the heroes. Uh, you know, he goes into the labyrinth and defeats the Minotaur and all the rest yeah. of it. And I ended up being almost most fond of dear old lumbering, slightly less intelligent Heracles, who's known mostly for his strength. And, and the reason was that after sort of accompanying him through his labors and through the subsequent adventures after he completed the twelve. Labors, as I realized, his greatest strength was not his strength, but his ability to endure his mm. fortitude. Yeah. And and I've, I think that when I look around the world, I travel quite a lot, and I used to do a lot of you know documentary programs, sometimes in the developing world, where I'd see people of absolute poverty who who own literally nothing more than a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, and and maybe an old plastic milk flagon that they had you know that had lasted two years for them, the kind we would throw away once we you know, finished our quarter. Yeah. And, and, and I, and, and I tried to think, you know, we all talk about the cheerfulness that shocks us when we see the poor, but it is, I realized that one of the greatest qualities you can have is simply to endure, just, just to keep going. And, and part of our arrogance and our egotism is that we think our lives should be so special and should be so happy that, that if they're not, we, we stamp our feet and, and think this is wrong. I've not gotten all the things I want. I'm not feeling the way I should. Mm. And and I try and remember the person who walks five miles every day to get the water for the family and comes five miles back and then is beaten by their husband and <laughs> makes the food. Right. And, they, and yeah. they just, they're not, it's not that they're always giggling and cheerful, but that they endure, that they don't go, that's enough, I'm going to end it all. And, and is, well, it, well, it, does I, mindfulness I think... have, a, have a role in, in that simple fortitude, as I say? It's, it's a, well, it, well it, it definitely does because mindfulness is the the ability to simply be aware of each experience, pleasant or unpleasant, without reacting to it. I mean, it's, it's to, to accept uh -huh. its character in that moment. And the thing that you find is the more you do that, the more a kind of intrinsic peacefulness and equanimity and joy in just intrinsic to consciousness be yeah. becomes something you, you experience so that there's a kind of happiness available or a feeling of well-being available before anything happens, even before the negative experience yes. or the unpleasant experience goes away. So it's like your, your happiness in a moment of, to take a, just a, a simple example, let's say you're going to the dentist to get your teeth drilled, right? So most people find that a fairly unpleasant experience, even with local anesthetic, right? Just the whole, everything around it is, there's anxiety around it, and the, the experience is unpleasant, but though happily, having anesthetic is much better than not having it. But most of us feel, that our default feeling, I mean, the, the kind of cows we are, is to feel that we'll be happy again when this experience is over, 
right? Like it's predicated, like we're waiting, right. we're waiting for our experience to change. Yeah. And so much of our life is spent waiting for our experience to change. We're either grasping at what's pleasant and it is changing and we're not liking that change. I mean, so we're like, we're, wait, we're trying to hold on to the thing that's pleasant. And, and that is a completely ineffectual exercise. I mean, we're, we're just, we just kind of greedily repeat our pleasures and try to sustain them, try to keep them aloft as long as we can. Uh, yes. But then we're glutted by that particular pleasure and we have to move on to something else. You, you, know, you eat enough ice cream and then all of a sudden you need a drink of water and you're, we're continually moving from, mm. from pleasure to pleasure in the best case. But we're also desperate in each moment of unpleasant experience for it to change, mm. right? So we're buffeted around continually by our grasping at the pleasant and pushing mm. the unpleasant away. And mindfulness is the explicit realization of this once you train it enough we're rarely discovering that consciousness itself has an intrinsic character that is at rest and at rest in a way that is in large measure the reward we are seeking when we're busy gratifying desire and pushing mm. uh, unpleasant things away so it's like I mean, just think of what's happening when you really desire something when you get it into your head that oh, wouldn't it be great if we could just have a beer now whatever the sensory desire is you don't want to live in the state of desire. You want to gratify the desire. Yes right? and no, Sam. You see, that's interesting. I agree with you about the ice cream. Of course, you want the ice cream. But I find it interesting that even at my advanced age, I still sometimes, when I'm dropping off to sleep, fantasize about how it is that I wasn't picked to open the batting for England at cricket. Why I'm not. And I, and I replay these fantasies in which I am suddenly there at Lord's huh. Cricket Ground Bat tapped under my arm, walking out to the middle, about to, to, to be glorious. And, and I know it because it's past. It can't have happened. It won't happen. It never will. But playing the desire, the fantasy, is fantastically oh, rewarding. But, but, you're also playing the, you're, but you're also playing the gratification of desire. Yes, I am. But I'm yeah. playing it. I know it isn't right. true. Oh, I yeah. know it's a nonsense. Yeah, yeah. No, um, and your but quite Buddhist analysis that you've given about the you know, gratification, desire, and the you know, central sort of consciousness hanging in a much more sort of peaceful place and so on. I, I, it's something I accept. And I, I read that, what was that yellow book about why Buddhism works or whatever? Did you read that? Oh, book? why Buddhism is true. Yeah, true, Robert, yeah. Robert, right, yeah. And I, I ended up not thinking that Buddhism <laughs> no. was true, but right. I, I thought it was interesting. And of course, as the empiricist in me wants to go to Myanmar and see where Buddhists are, are, are performing genocide against rangers and can see where Buddhist monks rape people. And, you know, right. things are as bad there as they are in any other system. So, but and and the you know the no true Scotsman uh, f philosophical argument will say ah but they're not real Buddhists right. and of course they're not. I, real I, actually, I, I do a footnote I like to place Muslims. there, but yeah. But yeah. let me just come back to your example yeah. of, of uh, you being the the greatest cricket star of your generation. <laughs> yes. So that that's actually analogous to a practice that's different from mindfulness, but also a kind of meditation practice that is useful. It, it is it reveals the fact that you can feel your self sense swell and get gratified, and even acquire new capacities by fantasizing in this way, yes. is something that, that is directly trained in different kinds of Buddhist practice. So like yeah. the Tibetan Buddhists do this primarily. They'll visualize themselves as these various heroic figures in, their, in the pantheon, as bodhisattvas, or, or mm -hmm. it's called deity practice, but the word deity is, is misleading in a Judeo-Christian context. So is it be analogous to telling someone, all right, you tend to be a shy person. You know, you walk into a bar and you, you don't feel comfortable making eye contact with strangers. Yeah. But now we're going to put you in an acting class for, for one week, right? 
and teach you very, cognitive behavior therapy yeah. do for people. Which, right, but, yeah. but but this is to specifically go in the direction that you took us. You give them some of the tools of improv and acting, and then you say, okay, now you're going to go into the bar, but you're not going to go in as yourself. You're now playing a role. I want you to go in as Jason Bourne or mm-hmm. some, you know, some bulletproof, super confident character. James, you're, you're the next James Bond, right? Mm-hmm. How would James Bond go into this bar? How would he carry himself? What would be his attitude when ordering a drink? Someone can take that on internally. Again, a completely fantastical mm. self-model, but it, it is just a concept. It's just a a layer yeah. of concept that they're putting over their And, and again, I would say, I, I would say as always is, is that art and literature has, has always got there first. And, and that, yeah, there are the training systems, but, you know, look at Cervantes and look at Walter Mitty for that matter. Mm-hmm. You know, they, right. they play with the, both the humor and the melancholy in the case of Cervantes as well as the glory of, of self-pretense and of self-aggrandizement and the whole you know, 16th, 17th century, uh, the Miles Gloriosus, you know, the, the Falstaffian character um, is both, is, is a wonderful and an admirable thing. But I, I, I wanted to, to, to think, to, to, for us to think about this, you know, I can hear a lot of 12 steps, Lord grant me the something to accept the things I can change right. and you know, a lot of AA training. I can, I can hear a lot of tea towel desideratums. I can hear a lot of obviously plain good sense. And I can hear a lot of this very Buddhist idea that essentially we're all addicts and and that an alcoholic is just a slightly different kind of addict to the rest of the addictions that we all have. And then I look at the the Nietzschean Greek idea, the birth of tragedy of the Mm -hmm. Dionysian and the Apollonian impulses in humanity and these these slightly more Manichaean views of us that that actually the, the purpose or not the purpose, but the the fact of the true identity of a human being is that we, we are war inside each other and that that war is, the, is, is what creates the, 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 the two distinct elements that fight the Apollonian, which is calm, golden, harmonious, reasonable. It's rhetoric, it's music, it's, it's philosophy, it's numbers, it's all those beautiful and ordered things. It's mm. prophecy and it's truthful, which is an important thing about the Apollonian principle. Against that is the Dionysian, which is frenzy and appetite and greed and need and impulse and, and letting go and, and a madness, right. um, which can end up in tearing people apart in its you know, yeah. the back. It's as if the Greeks were saying, and this is Nietzsche's point, and uh, as if they were saying, you know, that we are human beings. We are, we are physically savage animals like other, and other mammals we can look at. We, we have, you know, hierarchies and positions and we tear at each other and we have greed and we have impulse, but we have this extra thing. But that one without the other is absolutely useless. It is that Forsterian only connect. To be only Apollonian mm-hmm. is, and you know, it's like a Star Trek adventure. All, this, all the Roddenberry Star Treks were always about that. I wouldn't say you want none of the Dionysian, but you want it on tap, right? You want to be able oh, to yes, control you be, it. Uh, yes. You don't want to be, we all see these disordered people who, and this is actually a kind of a paradox that was implied by your uh, what you were saying about the stoical poor, essentially, that we, mm. there's something incredibly admirable about people who just get up every day and get through a life of, of real difficulty where, you know, they don't even have the freedom to think about mm. even the concept of human happiness on some level. It's just, I mean, yeah. there's a certain level of poverty and toil that precludes caring about anything we've been talking about. But the paradox there is that 
there are many people who live in the in the most prosperous circumstances. They have every opportunity, you know, you and I have, and even yeah. beyond in some cases. You have movie stars who kill themselves, right? In, yes. the, in, the, in the extreme yes. case, who, you know, they met everyone they wanted to meet. They got invited to all the parties. They were physically beautiful and healthy up until the moment they hung themselves, right? Yeah. And so abundance isn't enough, clearly. I mean, Nietzsche himself was, certainly was not a, an advertisement for, 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 for psychological health. <laughs> he he, 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 even, even before he hugged the horse and, and <laughs> completely lost it, he was clearly not happy. He was no. quite a tortured personality. I mean, he was physically unwell. He was, yeah. Uh, yeah, everything, yeah, everything was difficult for him, except that he had this incredible intellect. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. But it made him a fascinating investigator at, his, at yeah. the height of his powers, at least. Yeah. But uh, no, he's a problematic figure, and I know she's, our mutual friend Stephen Pinker has yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, disparages more, more than most. <laughs> he does. But uh, no, I, I was just sort of. I'm. I sound as if I'm fighting. You know, I. I no, I, I, let, I, I let myself I open it, yeah. on. The, I, I've attempted suicide o over three times, twice with, you know, extreme seriousness. I mean, I, and my adolescent one mm -hmm. may or may not. Well, memory can't really tell me. I thought I wanted to in my life. I ended up in a hospital with my stomach being pumped and. Mm -hmm. uh, Everyone told me that it was a cry for help and I didn't really mean it. And I sort of accepted that must be true. But the two subsequent times were very real. And I certainly cannot claim that I have had anything other than the most startling good luck in my life. Good luck with my parents, who are both, A, still alive, amazingly, brilliant and extraordinary people, admirable in every moral and intellectual and every other familial and social sense you could expect a parent to be. And that's true of my siblings, uh, true of my... Uh, Education. I don't think I could have had a better one. I'm given certain gifts, certainly in terms of um, memory and, uh, and language and things, if, if not in physicality and music and others that I would have liked. I've, I've got very little to complain about. And in that life, enormous amount of luck. And, and yet I were reduced to states in which I, I wanted absolutely to, to, to end it. And, and that even remembering it seems bizarre to me now. And of course, I'm a, a not in more... any position to decry or disparage any system that can clearly, provably, empirically help. Well, give me just, I just want you to give the, our listeners a little more context for that. So you, you've suffered from manic depression. Do you yes, actually have I, a, a diagnosis? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I it was never, oddly enough, I was diagnosed in a sort of parenthesis by a psychiatrist that my parents sent me to when I was 15 um, at school. I was deeply troubled in mm -hmm. all kinds of ways. Uh, I was a kleptomaniac and I was, uh, you know, just a very disruptive force. And the school eventually began to run out of patience with me. And uh, I was sent to a psychiatrist and he, he'd put bipolar question mark. And this was back in the early 70s. Mm. Bipolar was not often used as a, as a, as a you know, diagnostic word. But I didn't know about that until years later when I made a documentary about manic depression called Manic Depression and Me or something. I'm sinking so much back in my sofa, you've come to adjust my <laughs> microphone. And, uh, yeah, I had uh, eventually after you know, a, whole, a whole lot of unfortunate experiences, I, I kind of settled on this diagnosis of, of bipolar hmm. one. And How old were you when you thought of it in, in those terms? Late 30s, early 40s, uh -huh. when I first sort of dealt with it and then sort of did what people usually do is you go on a dance with your psychiatrist of trying out cocktails of various 
drugs of one kind or another. Right. And it was important that, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, let's face it, we've all got friends who we can sit down at a dinner table with and we can drink absolutely equal amount, a congruent amount, the same glass of wine. We mm. can have four glasses each. I will go a bit sleepy and that friend we will all know will suddenly their eyes will snap and they'll start being rude and aggressive and unpleasant mm -hmm. start repeating themselves they're a bad drunk we've all met them yeah that's with a very simple chemical relatively like alcohol esters and aldehydes and a few other things mm. messing around in the brain well it's no wonder that it takes a great deal of time to find pharmaceutical interventions that work for people because if alcohol can be so different to different people then you know think of these antipsychotics and and, and other such you know, drugs, no wonder they have different effects on different people. And, and so it took a long time for me to try out different things. But did you find something that worked? I or? did, and they've and, and and I've actually stopped now. I've been off off it for two years. It was lithium, it was good old fashioned. Oh well, yeah, lithium of all things. In the end, I was taking a sort of fairly maximal dose, so you have to have your kidneys checked every mm -hmm. three months or so. And the act of you know this is a it's not course mindfulness but the the act of having to concentrate on your own mind in an almost objective way which you do when talking to a psychiatrist right. as opposed to a psychotherapist and i'm not decrying psychotherapy or different forms of psychoanalysis or psychology i'm talking but the advantage of it being purely somatic purely medical physiological yeah. and medical yeah. and, and pharmaceutical is that you can be quite objective about it oh my brain seems to be doing this all this makes my mouth dry and I go zombified and I hate it and please stop and I want another one, please. You know, but over the, if that happens over about two years, you do start to be mindful of your mind in a way that, and so you start to do things that are completely unconnected with that, or at least turns out they are, of course, connected, mm -hmm. like you start going for walks and you start calming down a bit. You start being less, I drink less, you know, and barely drink at all now. And now that's all a result of just being more aware of not wanting to crowd my mind out so much, but at the same time, desperate not to be zombified. That was my quest with mm -hmm. pharmaceuticals. And I suppose that was always my problem with mindfulness was that it might make me into some serene beaming Buddha, which was the last yeah, thing in the well, world I wanted to be. <laughs> I wanted to be Prince Siddhartha living in the city, right. not, <laughs> not the Buddha going out of it and transforming himself and sitting on trees yeah. and all that sort of thing. Well, but again, the, the invidious comparison runs the other way. It's, it's, my experience is that moments when I'm not mindful, by comparison, seem like the zombified that's moments. It. I mean, like I, that's where I'm the cow in the field, just happy to be chewing its cud when I'm fixated on you know, something that was tweeted about me, right? Or you yes. know, like, like th those moments of, of collapse of attention into the mediocre rather than just absolute clarity about my circumstance. The floodlights of consciousness are as bright as they can be, and my, my experience is, is fully coincident with that, as opposed yeah. to it being colored by whatever the discursive thinking is or the reaction is to experience. Yeah. So, so it's, and here's the, you're a scientist, and you know these things. We all know them. Energy, right? Mm -hmm. we, we're all. Everything is based on right. energy. It's we can't exist without it. it. Comes from the sun, fires us up. It's expressible in calories. It's heat. It's, right. You know, it's work done. Yes. It's everything that you know. Physics one hundred and one tells you it yeah. is. 
And yet we've all, of course, been at a lunch party with families and we've had a meal, a big meal, full of calories, full of energy. And then there are these children throwing themselves around the garden for four hours who haven't eaten anything like as much as one has. So therefore have less fuel in their tank, supposedly. Hmm. Now they're smaller and they're bouncier and and all the rest of it. But, you know, we've all thought, wow, where did they get that energy from? Why haven't I got it? But more importantly, just especially as you get older, you question where your energy comes from, the energy that makes you able to concentrate that. That, mm. You know, and obviously, I've just a week ago literally flew from London, so there's the jet lag issue, 6,000 miles to, here to LA. I'm now used to the fact that I have to give up a few days where I'm just not going to be able to, to read and concentrate or even you know, to do much more than just answer emails. And I'll, I'll mutually wander around the house and, and not expect much of myself. But part of me is saying, suppose it doesn't come back. Suppose mm. next week. And I've got to sit down and write this thing or, you know, I suppose I can't. I suppose I, the, it will go through my fingers like sand and I can't grip, I can't hold on to stuff. I suppose that happens. And is that something you think mindfulness can help with, that it, that it can either give one the confidence that one can concentrate in the future, that one will have the energy to mm. involve oneself, or, or will it actually no, give well, you the energy? Not so much in my experience. It's, it's somehow more fundamental than that it's again it's this will concern my answer here will concern you that this is inclining more toward the cow than toward the (laughs) bacchanalian poet you want to be uh but um i mean i assure you the experience is not but it's it's when you actually become aware of what it's like not to have the energy that you want right that like what sleepiness is like or what depression is like or what having the flu and just feeling completely wrung out is like you can drop back into the kind of the position of just being conscious of that and notice that consciousness in that case isn't actually different from consciousness in the full presence of all your powers and all of your energy. It's like, yeah. but to become mindful of sleepiness or to become mindful of being utterly enervated by something doesn't replace your energy. It doesn't make, doesn't yeah. give you all the competence you want. Certainly, if you have the flu, you, you don't become well. No, it's right? not a magic. No. It's not the same thing as getting a good night's sleep. You'll feel the consequences of not having slept well, whether you're mindful or not. But sleepiness is a fascinating thing to be mindful of, because sleepiness on, on some level is just a pattern of energy in your face. It is an object of consciousness, and you can drop back and notice it. It's easy to also just fall asleep if you're you know sleepy enough while you're meditating. But short of falling asleep, you can be with absolute clarity, like undiminished clarity, aware of sleepiness as an appearance in consciousness, as something that is like indigestion or you know pain yeah. in your back, or so, like something that can be witnessed from a prior position, a position that actually kind of transcends mm. it, and so too with negative emotion. And that's why mindfulness is such a powerful antidote to anger and sadness and everything else. Because the you you notice that when you drop back into merely witnessing these states of mind, they have a very short half life. They have to continually be resurrected yeah. by patterns of thought, and so it's very hard to stay angry or afraid or anxious for any any yeah. significant period of time. Actually, yeah. I, but before we move on to anything else, I wanted to back up and ask you: Have you found that the manic component of bipolar 
has that been a, a significant source of your own creative energy? And is that that's a really good question, and it's one that I was unsure of. And most people who are bipolar will know that their partners infinitely prefer their depressed state to their elevated mm. state. It's much easier to live with someone depressed, sad as yeah, that may sound, yeah. than someone who is manic. And it tended to be things like jet lag in, in, in made me manic rather than depressed in state. And yeah, I wasn't sure how much. I did feel that W.H. Auden thing of don't take my devils away or my angels will leave too, you know, mm. and, and maybe that was part of who I was, was this someone whose moods swept them along and, and that the mania was the thing I needed to be in any way, if not even creative, at least productive. But I've, I've found that that isn't the case, and, and at, at least in as much as we all have sort of some kind of move in, in moods between elevation and depression. Right. Everyone does. In, 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 to some extent, people are in a good mood or a bad mood or a yeah, busy definitely. mood. Or, I'm sure many people have a, you know, a tidy mood when they suddenly, why, why couldn't I do this three weeks ago, tidy my bedroom like this or, or sort out my books? You know, we get those good moments. The thing I, I just, I don't know if this is relevant to anything you wanted to talk about, but it really interests me because I have a foot in both countries, is the American-British difference on this, mm -hmm. or the European-American difference, really. We look to America, and we see you have an extraordinary tradition in snake oil, huckstering, and every bookshop in America, the largest section is not fiction, it's not biography, it's not sports memoirs or anything else. It's self-help, it's right. improvement. It's, as you know, it's just the whole three-quarters of a bookshop now is, we can make you rich, we can make you happy, we can make you sleep, we can make you healthy, we can make you thin, we can... You know. And obviously, I'm not saying that this doesn't happen in Britain. We, 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 when, you, um, when you do anything in America, we, we, we intend to inherit it and have for the last hundred right. years or so. Right. But we are much more inwardly cynical, doubtful, distrustful of people who tell us they have an answer. And in America, it's both, to me, the, the miracle and joy of America is this open-hearted sense that life is perfectible and improvable and there is a technique you can be taught and that things can be made better you could i mean you know until 50 years ago the idea of there being a creative writing course in a british university was absurd right. yeah. what God, who taught shakespeare who taught um, dickens who taught flaubert what's this nonsense right. teaching writing are you insane and i think it's still people feel that you know and yeah. it's just you know acting maybe because that's a craft but right. something that's an art can't be taught, surely. You could teach someone to draw, but you can't teach them to be an artist. Anyway, all that sort of nonsense. And and I, you know, I deprecate this Britishness. I think it's absurd. But I, no, I, but, I, but I, I think some of your embarrassment with mindfulness specifically could be its entanglement with all of the other New Age products well, in the self-help exactly. section of a bookstore. You put that, your and to be fair to you, and I'm not suggesting that I put you in that category because right. you don't. I mean, you do make claims for mindfulness, but you make, you're, you're obviously, you're a scientist and you've made your public name being a, a skeptical inquirer, right. if you like. And so you know what you're doing when you make a claim. You, 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 you know the difference between doing it to sell a course or a book or a podcast and, and because you actually believe that you've found something to be true and that you can demonstrate to be true, or at least you believe, you know. And, but, but, the, the, but there is a, a huge industry in this country. And I wonder about that, whether in the same way that some virologists and immunologists would say 
what you need to do with children is just make them lick a lot of gravel when they're young. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> Expose them to as many germs as you can. Make them ready for failure. Make them believe in, you know, their their body. And and similarly, the mind. The education is about being, being, being ready for the battering and the beating and the and that maybe everything's too sanitized and too uh, protected and too and there's too much promise as, about what the world can be. And I I don't believe that. But but I suppose one of the things I say is that if a Briton were to say only in England. They would be referring to something grey, miserable, mm -hmm. probably involving a long line or queue, and and a disaster and a late bus or something and, and bad weather. <laughs> and if America said only in America, they would be referring to someone who'd done something astounding. You know, they jumped from one building to another, or they built an extraordinary flying bicycle. Or you know, you go ha, only in America. And and there's there's a zing of pride about what you can do here, and a zing of opportunity. And it's still here even after all the troubles of the 20th century and the troubles of the beginning of this century, you've still got that basic difference that Americans seem genuinely to believe that you can make things better and that it's exciting and that mm. it can be done. You can change yourself. Yeah. Although, again, it's, it's confounded with the hucksterism and woo you just referenced, mm. especially in the case of America, the fact that mindfulness can be could, yeah. could be found on the same shelf with Gwyneth Paltrow recommending that women put jade oh. eggs in their vaginas or whatever that scandal was. And, and it's, it unfortunately discredits or can be seen to, to smear the, the, the entire enterprise of, of some right. you know, yeah. But also just, just the fact that you have the association with it, that it's a further ramification of one's egocentricity, right? Yeah, like that, like the, but it, it certainly could be that. I mean, there, there are people who pursue something like meditation in the same vein as they pursue any other self-improvement. But mm. to actually do it successfully, you, you recognize fairly early that, one, the, the actual explicit goal of it is to recognize that this self you think you're improving is at its core an illusion, right? That you're not, yeah. you don't have this stable self that you've been worried about. And that's a, you know, admittedly a fairly esoteric insight, but if there can be said to be a goal of, of the practice, it's it's to have that insight and to live out its consequences. But it's also just just take the, the coarsest grained change you're looking for, insofar as the goal is to be able to regulate negative emotion. That is one of the most pro-social things you can do. And that's a, precisely the thing you want to teach your children to do so that they can be decent citizens of yes. any civilization. So while they're licking gravel, you also want them to lick the gravel of becoming more aware of their own narcissism and yes. to, to mitigate it in relationship to people. You don't want them going to other people's homes and eating like savages and, and, no. you know, and, and scandalizing your, your good name. And have you found that the, the, the act of child rearing has in any way kind of um, not made a nonsense of, but you know, we all know parents who uh, start their children off when they go off milk, that the drink will be unsweetened fennel juice. But within three months, they're giving them candy and they're giving them chocolate because the pre peer pressure and everything else is so enormous that they can't keep up their good intentions and the, the, the child will <laughs> prove itself to be the master. There's some of that. I mean, there's some erosion of your best intentions. But I mean, my wife is especially good at this. And, and to some degree, I'm the coward who can just huddle behind her where she holds the line on, on many of these, right. these things. You know, she enforces many of these limits. but. 
yeah, I mean, to some degree, it's, it's a tension between you living vicariously through your children and and wanting to correct every problem you you see in yourself that could have been corrected earlier. You want to correct it at the earliest opportunity for them, yes. at the least painful opportunity for them. So you want to sort of cram in everything that can be learned early, early, and that's a but you can't possibly cram everything in. But you also don't want to be the kind of parent who's sending any kind of message of conditional love, right? Like, so you, like you don't want to be the taskmaster. You no, don't want to be the, the You must the hall monitor, me by right? doing this kind of Exactly. Attitude. So it's hard to fully reconcile those two things. And, and for me, it's I mean, the healthiest balance for me is to create a circumstance where the world is doing as much of that work as is possible. Mm. Like, you know, put them in a good school where you can trust that the school can be giving them the pressure that you wish you had and the and the yeah. instruction you wish you had at that age to the degree you actually wish you had it. And therefore, it's not my job to provide any of that. I mean, I, I can no. just provide support in that context. Well, there's, you know, it, is that, I mean, it, it's part, again, it's part of my sort of transgressional, bloody-minded nature or my paradoxical nature is to think that actually, you know, we spend all our time being careful about children. They're the least we need to be careful about. They, are the, they have the most neuroplasticity. Their bodies are the most able to yeah, heal themselves that, quickly. Yeah. They can, you throw them up, throw a baby out of a, a second-story window, it'll just roll off the grass, you know. Whereas if I fall off a two-inch chair, I'll break an ankle, you know. So, so hang on, we're the ones who need to be, we're the ones who, who really need the care and attention, the ones who are older, who have less neuroplasticity. And indeed, do we have, you're an expert in this field, enough neuroplasticity, if that's the right word even, to change yourself, if I'm 61, so if I've started oh, yeah. on your course, have I got a disadvantage to someone who's 21 starting on your course? Well, it is like your near-fatal chair. I mean, you have a disadvantage with, with respect to virtually everything mm -hmm. that could have been done earlier, right? I mean, so we, yeah. you know, it's better to, you know, if you want to learn to play the piano, why not yes, do that at age eight rather than 80? Windows, yeah. 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 Hence the bias toward giving them everything they, that they could possibly benefit by as early as possible. And mindfulness too. I mean, you, kids can learn to practice mindfulness at age six and and above. It's it's you know, it's it's not too early to start. It's fantastic. The general issue of plasticity, however, is I mean that's just it is a just a fact about the human brain that basically anything you do with it changes it. Again, just the formation of memory. If we remember this, even the fact of having had this conversation, it's only by virtue of having laid down the actual physical memory traces in our brain that we would recall it, right? Mm. So it's like the mm. brain has to change. I mean, genes have to be transcribed. Receptor yes. densities have to change. I mean, like it just, physical changes are the source and substance of anything that, about you that's going to change yeah. on the landscape of your mind. So yeah. there's nothing special about meditation or anyth anything else. Well, there is else this that's that special about it. If we, again, use the, the body-mind or the body -mind differential here, a human being or an animal born into the world into which it was sort of, to, to which it has evolved, to which we have evolved, this mm. world, our gym is the world. A, a normal human being living in the, uh, in, in the undeveloped world by climbing trees, th lifting things, making weapons, squatting down, all different movements, is doing all the movements, all the yoga movements, all the bodybuilding movements, all the aerobic exercise. And they are perfectly fit mm. just by living. 
The act of living in the world makes them physically fit. Now, there is no natural meditation process in, in that. Surely the act of living in your mind makes you your mind fit, interacting with people, being social and private in other times, having the full range of emotional and social affairs in the same way the, the full range of physical affairs makes you physically fit without having to go to a gym, then surely mm. living should make you mindful without having to do a special practice, an equivalent of a well, no, gym. Well, because it makes you, no, because you're tending to do the thing you're most habituated to doing in each moment and in, and in many domains. So like, let I me mean, just take your, you know, your, your physical posture. I mean, you're tending to stand the way you've been standing for many years. And, you know, gravity is your enemy, as you know, there. Yes. So you're tending to, to do it a little bit worse each time. But if you were to discover at some point that, you know, you have a back problem, right? And your posture is the source of your yeah. pain. And it's, it's now going to take some conscious attention to change the way you stand and sit. Otherwise, you're going to be miserable, right? Yeah. Mindfulness is more analogous to that, where it's like you've been doing this thing for years, yeah. which has gotten you to this place that you, you've, you've fully habituated to. It seems completely normal. And to stand up straight all of a sudden seems yes. odd, right? And it's worth pointing out that archaeology shows us that the, the fossil remains and the other remains of our ancestors who lived these perfect hunter-gatherer lives they have scoliosis and rheum yeah. rheumatic yes. problems and all kinds of arrow posture. wounds in their yeah. heads. All yeah. kinds right. of things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so in fact, right. that this idea that we were once perfectly fit and everything to, to, about us was uh, ideal is, of course, I, I accept absolute nonsense and that there are ways of improving it. It's a, it. The whole thing is so fascinating to me because, as you've rightly detected in me, it's a mixture of Englishness and just my own personal character. There's a, I've, I've been shy of it because of literally that shyness, awkwardness, embarrassment, and and a sense that it oughtn't to be necessary, that, that yeah. it's somehow... Again, there's nothing natural that is ideal. I mean, the, the natural state is a state of perfect illiteracy yeah. and innumeracy, right? Like, you know, nothing, none of this <laughs> comes easy to us. The fact that you don't recall how hard it was to learn to read is just a, an artifact of the fact that you were lucky enough to be brought up in a culture where you were given that skill early. I and mean, yes. it was hard work, even for somebody with a, an aptitude for it, uh, which uh, no doubt you had. There was a period where you did not know how to read. No, no. And there was some period of you know, arduous instruction yeah. where, that got you to this place where now it seems natural to you, right? Yes. And there are many things you have learned like reading, and there are many things that you never learned and maybe wish you had, and that it would be you would feel the full measure of the ordeal of learning them yeah. now if you were to take them on now. And mindfulness is something that you could have learned when mm. you were learning to read, right? So now all of a sudden right. it would be the it would be in your sinew to some degree uh, now. It, and it yes. would, you wouldn't then have to look back on say, and say, well, one would hope this wouldn't be necessary, right? Because I, yeah. I don't feel that of reading, right? No. Like and, and I think where I've been confused is that I've often seen, perhaps incorrectly, people presenting mindfulness as an endpoint rather than as a tool towards mm. whatever other endpoints one might have in one's life. And after all, reading is not the endpoint of living. It's right. not, you know, now right. I can read now, I don't have to do anything else. Reading is the start of the whole adventure of, of, of the life of the mind and, and so on. And, yeah. and, and I suppose I've seen people think, or, and maybe some people have, got so into their yoga and their meditation and 
and, and their various practices, whatever disciplines they may be from or whatever cultural areas they've you know, borrowed from and, and adapted, that they've become the end point. They've become the purpose of their living yeah. rather than well, a, a tool and, for and then people be, And the same with the gym, of course. People become completely fixated on you know, all manner of thing that they become newly converted to or seems yes. to be paying massive dividends. And so whether it's, I mean, for me, I was, when I got into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I was insufferable. I was just proselytizing <laughs> jiu-jitsu. I mean, I'll still do it if, if you, you get me started. Presumably you uh, need a Brazilian with, with right, whom to practice. Right, That's right. the problem. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, that used to be the case. Now you can, now you can find a Russian or an, or an right. American or it's anyone spread else. Spread around enough yeah, around. Yeah. Close grappling, I believe. Yes, I, I, I looked it up when I found it. It's incredibly fun and addictive, but also it has the downside of being worse than your chair at this age and causing injury. I have to say you Americans are so much better than us as well. I mean, there are European-type Americans, like you know, my old friend Gore Vidal or whatever, who, are, mm -hmm. who, like me, had absolutely no interest in the body. But it goes back a long way with me to school and everything. I, I so hated what you would call the jocks. You know, the, the, um, I, I loathe the smell of the gymnasium, the smell of the dressing room, the idea of the showers, the rugby, the cricket, the football, all of that. I hated them. I mean, I now love sport. I'm absolutely passionate about uh, watching sport everywhere I can, almost all sports, even minority sports like darts and snooker and things I'm obsessed with. But at the time, because of my own shame of my own body, my own feeling that I was so inadequate, so uncoordinated, I couldn't run in a straight line with it running into a tree hmm. and catch a ball or throw a ball just felt utterly inadequate and and enraged by it and, 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 and didn't had enough pride not to, to to mean that i therefore just skulked in a corner feeling inadequate but i i uh, i took on my side as as champions great intellects and and others who had mocked the the philistine obsession with games as they're called in England, right. sport you know this idea that that's what's going to win you the empire by being good at football or cricket um, i just loathed it i thought and, and to me it was a war it wasn't apollo and dionysus it was it was the aesthete against the athlete mm -hmm. it was the the, the 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 philistine barbarian against the life of the mind body or the mind it was one or the other and and i find people like you and so many americans say no you know, writers I read, you know, what's his name, John Irving, people like that, who, who were wonderful writers. And yet he, he was also, a wrestler, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly, yeah. into wrestling, because yeah. that reminded me of it when you were talking about jiu-jitsu. And so, and so many, of, you know, great American writers have been, you know, mailers written about boxing and, mm -hmm. you know, others, there's sure. plenty have written about baseball. And, and, and there doesn't seem to be this, you choose one or the other. You're right. either an intellect and an artist or you're some sort of grunt who throws things and uh, say, hey, you see the game the other week? And Americans seem more, generally speaking, you get more Americans who are rounded, who, who actually are capable of talking about baseball and, you know, <laughs> deontics or whatever you right, know, right. want it to be. Right. You know? <laughs> actually, I'm now painfully aware that we, do, we actually haven't touched on how you met Hitch or... or uh, yeah. I, so I, I, well, he was a man who was not interested in sport at no, all. Yeah, no, no. Wait, so how far back did you go with him? It, it goes back to uh, the Hay on Wye Literary Festival. There's a mm. little village on the borders of Wales and England called Hay on Wye, or Way on High, as I call it. And, and I'm actually the president of the literary festival. But it's a huge literary festival for this tiny little town that was famous for having 
dozens of bookshops, all owned by the same man. He just right. bought new cafes, bought oh, the cinema, really? nice. turned the cinema yeah. into a bookshop. Everywhere is a bookshop. And so this, about 30 years ago, uh, a literary festival started up. And uh, and I used to you know do things there, both readings of my own books, if I was writing at the time, and, and also moderate platform events, various things. And and the hitch also he 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 came over to do a lot of them I, uh, with his friend Ma uh, Martin Amis yeah. and do interviews and, and he'd he'd be there with his pint mug full of uh, black label whiskey and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and do three or four and we did debates together we did one on uh, on religion it wasn't quite on religion it was on whether or not despite its untruth or at least its the inability to prove any of the basic tenets of most religions uh, that there might be something useful in liturgy and devotion and was piety. That, was that an Intelligence Squared debate? It, no, it wasn't. That This was just a, a hey on why one. Uh -huh. We later did okay. an right. Intelligence Squared debate about yeah. the Which uh, is the wonderful. That's, that's available online. Yes, which is on yeah. YouTube. And, and we got on straight away. We shared a, a devotion to the writer P.G. Woodhouse. He, mm. he, we, he's able to, he was able to, to, to quote him at great length, and we would have uh, fun with that. So we called each other Old Horse, uh -huh. which I still uh -huh. do with his uh, widow, Carol, Carol Blue, who she calls me Old Horse which is a, a Woodhousean uh, apostrophe. And uh, we just hit it off st straight away. What year was that? Do you remember? Ah, uh, gosh, no. I was in the late 90s, I guess. Uh -huh. And then I'd see him a lot when, 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 we came, when, when he came to, to Wales or to Britain. I'd uh, see him, and, but not, not often enough. I saw him a couple of times in, in Washington and around different parts of the world where he mm. would pop up. And... Uh, he he, genuinely extraordinary figure because very rarely do you get together that mix of sheer breathtaking articulacy, um, memory, frame of reference is endless. I mean, in, in certainly in, in political writing and social writing and in, in the history of religion and theology and various things. He had his gaps, including yeah. music and sport, for example. He was not particularly strong on those. But he, together with that that wit and speed of reflex and and a sense of energetic enjoyment so that when he i think the, the reason he's still so popular on youtube for generations who are now young enough almost not to have been contemporaries contemporaneous with him at all you know because he they're enlivened by him because of the relish and i think that's a a kind of forgotten aspect of of, of it he he relished the fight he relished yeah. intellectual argument he relished opposition. He he relished the opportunity to express himself to to put someone down. Often, yes, but also, you know, I would say that you know the the, the two most scary forms of politeness are the American officer when you arrive with your passport and your green card, and that the way they say "sir" mm -hmm. is the most aggressive word you've ever heard in uh -huh. your life. That asshole would be far far more <laughs> preferable. Sir, do not talk to me. Sir, <laughs> sir, sir, do not talk. Sir, thank you. And similarly, Hitch had one as well, which he, he, he would call people sir or madam when he was debating with them. Uh -huh. uh, sir, and he just knew that they were going to be torn to pieces. It's a bit like the right-wing equivalent is the Rush Limbaugh calling people my friend, mm -hmm. you know, which always makes you kind of go, don't you dare call me. Well, now, my friend, you know, you just know they're a right-wing shock jock when they, when they talk like that. But um, no, a hugely missed figure, hugely missed for, for that as much as anything. And, and of course, he, he died before his time. And that relish I spoke of that he brought to debate, he brought to alcohol and 
feasting and uh, yeah, you know yeah. his whole way and, and it, it got to him because it, there was a price to be paid at the end for all that smoking and drinking i'm afraid and mm. i don't think anyone can doubt that his death was uh, a you know a direct lifestyle death rather than just right. bad luck but uh he yeah i'd urge anyone who 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 got a spare afternoon you know there there are certain things that are more fun than they should be about youtube which one ought to deprecate but it, and and that is, you can just say, I'm going to have a Bertram Russell evening, you know? Yeah. And you can literally, because he, he was interviewed enough on film for you to, I know, it's to amazing. chase through for hours and think, wow. And you can do it with um, uh, Richard Feynman, or you can do mm. it with, 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 with Hitch, you know? They just, you just, one little clip leads to another and another and another, and you end up celebrating this passion for reason and argument and... Uh, getting to the bottom of things and for not allowing sloppy thinking and not allowing lazy cliche uh, assumptions to prevail, but for constantly refining and refining. And uh, it meant that he, he, he made enemies, of course, of, as people always do in the intellectual world, more from his own kind than from his, his, his natural opposition because of his uh, support of the war on terror, so-called. Right. Other such things, but you, you, how well did you know him? I met him in 2007, just as he was getting ready to publish "God Is Not Great," yeah. and we were, were, you know, allies in the publishing phenomenon of that book. And we did two debates together, where we were, you know, on yeah. the same, happily on the same side of the the dais. Then we had, you know, this four horsemen conversation, and we, you know, had yeah. dinner, you know, a couple of other times, and. You know, largely an email correspondence when yeah. we're not in the in the same city. So I really, I I did feel you know you know personally robbed of the opportunity to grow old mm. with him. I mean, you know, because he was yeah. such a he was such good company, and uh, I hadn't I'd only known him for really it was four years, you know, yeah. and the last four years of his life. But yeah, that that really was it was so interesting to see that quality in him that you describe here and you describe well in the foreword to this book just the relish he took in those moments of combativeness and the, the fun he was having in debate i've simply never found that gear in my own mind it's just like it's just like when i'm in a debate i think it's also because i don't i've never approached debate even no matter how formally it's been framed in my own mind, I mean, this is, I think this is probably a fault, but I, I don't actually approach it as a game to be yeah. played. I approach it as a conversation, and the more, the more I find myself at loggerheads with the opposition, the negative emotion that, that begins to energize me is impatience, annoyance. Yes. You know, why can't they get the point, or why can't they admit what is obviously true yeah. or what we know to be true? And it's anger, but it's, for me, it's a kind of dispiriting anger yes, and a divisive anger. A source of and more... Hitch is just having, it's just his yeah. is, is, you know, part of it, I think, was just histrionic. I mean, he was not as angry as he was seeming to be in, in certain moments. He was just good fun. It was like he, yeah. he, he realized that his outbursts of anger were good theater. Yes. And he just wanted to, he, 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 was, he was entertaining in addition to oh, delivering absolutely. The, the ideas there. I, I remember teasing him when he discovered that he was in fact Jewish, that he hadn't known that mm -hmm. it was hidden from him, which I am too in as much as my mother is Jewish. So that sort of mm -hmm. counts it's right. in terms of a, a yeah, racial yeah. thing. Yeah. If not, Whether you like it or not, I'm you're not Jewish. Judaic, yeah. but uh, yeah. 
And and I said, you see, that fits exactly, Christopher, into your you disputation deep within the Jewish people. <laughs> you see, you've got to argue about everything. And, yeah. and arguing for the sake of it is a pleasure and a fun. I remember there was a chess cafe in Hampstead when I was growing up in, in North London. And I used to take friends to it. I said, um, you hear this bus going past us? And they go, yes. I said, this street is not as loud as a lot of old Jews playing chess. And then I'd open the door of the chess cafe and you'd hear this, hey, what do you know? Banging pieces down and shouting. <laughs> and I said, this is where it all happens. It's, it's disputation central. <laughs> and so between parliamentarian adversarial, you know, debating styles, which are very British kind of way of doing things, the, mm. and his, and that disputatious spirit, he, he, he was more energized than, uh, than, as you rightly said, dispirited by, right. by people not getting it or being just, you know, blocking, blocking. The drinking was another component of this because the, I mean, the drinking, uh, I think it's, it's hard to be totally idealistic about how much he drank. I mean, he was obviously incredibly functional yeah, while drinking that much in a way that, yeah. that few people would be. But, but I just remember the, the one experience, I think I wrote about this somewhere, but the one experience I had where it just proved to me that he was a different species than, <laughs> than I am. He, we were out, I think until, you know, one in the morning after a dinner where I, you know, I dropped him off at his hotel and he was, you know, just hammered. And he, clearly he was not intending to go to sleep at that point. You know, mm -hmm. he, he had a, his evening had some while yet to run, but I knew he had to be on a panel at nine in the morning at the, I think it was the UCLA uh, Literary Book Festival. And, you know, I woke up at, you know, five minutes to nine with a just I'm fully hung over, just a <laughs> yes. pounding headache. And I turned on the television just because it was, it, was, it was being televised, I think on C-SPAN, just out of morbid curiosity to see how bedraggled he would yeah. look at that point. I, I didn't know him well enough at that point to know what I should have expected. He was just absolutely lucid yeah. uh, and just holding forth and on the panel. And may well have filed, yeah. uh, filed a 1,200-word a piece of copy that night after right. saying goodbye yeah. to you in the elevator, you know, yeah. that's uh, because that's, that, that's the legend of him. And if people don't know him and who are listening, uh, I what would we recommend they read? Well, God is not great. He, there's one... Letters to a Young Contrarian is a, is a marvelous yeah, way to a start because it gives you a sense of his sense of what being a contrarian means and, you know, look the way to look at the world and assumptions. It's a good, yeah. good figure. And I, also, the audio book of Hitch 22 yeah, is it's, it's, it's fantastic to hear him read his books. He, he reads God is Not Great as well. But, um, yeah, Hitch 22, is his memoir is wonderful because it just gives you a sense of just how how many different scenes he was in and, and what that extraordinary world he came life, out yeah. of that sort of street political world of the 60s that to us is history that he lived through that uh, you know the, the the 1968 in in paris and the vietnam cyprus uh, central america all those flashpoints he actually yeah. visited them and, and as a as an unrepentant uh, trotskyist as he would call himself he disavowed trotskyite one final topic i want to hit mm. here is just the whole free speech issue, the new mood of censoriousness, the jokes you can't tell, mm. the tweets that can be found from five years ago that can wreck your career. Mm -hmm. You just did a, a debate where you were on, you were with Jordan Peterson against Michael Eric Dyson and, right. and Michelle Goldberg, which 
I, I, I honestly I did not see the whole thing. I just saw some clips, but the clips I saw of your opposition suggested that you know they had the same kind of inquisitorial spirit that you know we're worrying about here. Um, they did a bit. I'm afraid yeah. they, they they weren't the best guns to put up against us. I'd never yeah. met Jordan Peterson before, but I know he's a red rag to some as a bull. Uh, but some people find him pernicious in his attitudes and so on. But it was fascinating watching him. It's a rather mesmeric effect on our audience. Yeah. And we got on perfectly well. And, and I basically, I said, most people I know would be astonished to see me standing next to a man like Jordan Peterson, whom they perceive as being on one side of a political divide and representing a particular attitude towards you know sexuality and all kinds of other things and gender. But that's the point. That's why I'm standing there, because we're talking about something else. It doesn't matter whether, you know, in a debate, if we're talking about free exchange of ideas, it doesn't matter whether I'm standing next to Goebbels right. or, or to, uh, to Francis of Assisi. It, you know, a thing is, is not untrue because a man you disagree with says it, or nor indeed is it uh, wrong for him to speak because it's upsetting. But having said all that, I suppose, more interestingly, we live in the real world, and I want to live in the real world. I don't want to be shamed. I don't want to be redacted from history in the way that some people have been because in the past they've tweeted something that's come back to haunt them or they've mm. said in the heat of the moment uh, an unfortunate, uh, made an unfortunate remark about something or other that's upset someone. We all know the world we actually live in. And I grew up in a world that was slightly different. It was one in which it was quite possible to be banned from television because you said arsehole or something live or mm. fuck even. And certainly Cunt was not a serbal. Stephen Pinker wrote that wonderful book. Well, it was taken out of a wider book, but the, the, the seven words you can't say on television. Yeah. They've completely changed those seven words. You can say cunt as many times as you like on Netflix, as we know. There's certain things you can't say, though, which are nothing like as... I mean, even every time I've said the word cunt, people have gone, oh, Stephen, sure, don't so stop saying it. Because there are still people who find that difficult. Mm. But I'm not going to get deplatformed or in any way fired from any, except if I'm utterly tactless. I mean, if, if I'm with, sitting with my mother and some of her friends, I'm not going to use the word. Right. It's just I know that that's not, it's not a very nice thing to say in front of 80-year-old ladies yeah. who are sitting having a cup of tea. They'd just be embarrassed, and some might be shocked, and they'd just be, it would be an upsetting and unhappy thing to do, and there's no reason to do it. Right. Absolutely no reason. But when it comes to wanting to express freely one's thoughts about the differences between genders or between the effectiveness or non-effectiveness of various hashtag movements and so on, I've learnt to exercise censorship on myself in, in a way that is deeply disturbing. I don't feel that I should have to. You're just deciding to pick your battles and these aren't battles yeah, worth picking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if I'm going to get felled to the ground, it better be for a good cause. It better be clutching the right flag. And I have made an ass of myself. Uh, I went on Dave Rubin's show some two or three years ago and uh, got into quite a bit of trouble because I don't know whether he deliberately led me down the path, whether he was already ready to join the other side, as it were, and uh, this mm. so-called intellectual dark web thing. But, uh, yeah, I started talking about, well, I don't know, things to do with gender politics and mm. what would now be called snowflakery. And, and that, that did, I did end up having to apologize a bit. 
did that get played out on Twitter? Because yeah, I remember I did. you did you leave Twitter at one oh, point? Oh yes, then, I've, I've left a few times. <laughs> and when when you when you leave, you do, you do you actually cancel your account and, and zero out? On your one occasion, or? I did. I've only done that once, and then I thought, oh hell, it's just just it's just practically Sam. Frankly, if you have got thirty million followers, yeah, why not want to keep them for the well, occasional well, tweet? Well, yeah. Apart yeah. from anything else, if, if I write a book or got a, yeah. a film or something coming out, you get all these PR people saying, okay. Here's the junket. We're going to do Women's Wear Daily. We're going to do this newspaper, this magazine. And I go, listen, add up all their circulations together. Right. They don't Can't come I just to tweet? three million. Yeah. Can't I just do a tweet? Yeah. <laughs> so it's a good negotiating chip <laughs> to right. have, uh, which is, sounds a bit cynical. But it actually, I do enjoy when I'm being sensible and, and not inciting trolls and so on. I do enjoy the uh, the, the fun of Mm. Occasionally being well, so I've pulled back from Twitter to a, a mm. degree that I, I still find remarkable because I I got I got drawn into my own controversies on it and some of the controversies that played out in other formats. You know, articles written against me were based mm. on things that really had only happened because of my engagement with Twitter. Yeah. I was only noticing these things and reacting to them based on the fact that I was looking at my ad mentions. Yes, and now I. I I spend maybe, I mean, some days I don't even look at it, but, you know, yeah. it's it's like, you know, five minutes a day, at, you know, on the days that I do rather often. And I very rarely look at what was coming back at me. You know, I mean, yeah. sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll look briefly to take the temperature or something or just, you know, randomly, but it's very frequent that I will put something out there and be completely unaware of what's coming back at me, right? Yeah. And... There's a freedom in that, but I'm wondering if it's, I mean, I guess there's a potential delusion in that because if what's coming back at you is a career-ending tsunami of hate, right, <laughs> you, it would be good to know about that, right? Yes, you probably, you know? I think you'd find out if that were the case. Yeah. No, I think you're right. My, my view is, I, I think of it as an old, at school there used to be this area, it was called the colonnade, where, where it had a, a whole load of notice boards, so for different clubs and societies and sports, mm. plus the, the headmaster's notice board and so on. And and if so, if you were in charge of the chess club or something, and you know you would have your little window and you'd unlock the thing and you put your notice up, and then you'd close it and go away. You wouldn't wait to see everybody going up to the notice, reading it out to each other, and then saying, "Well, an ass wipe Stephen was right. for putting that up there." You'd just put the notice up and go away. You don't right. see the response to it, and that's that's sort of the the way I look at Twitter as a, as an old fashioned notice board, and I actually think of myself with the thumbtacks putting it up there's the notice yeah. i've put it up there and now i'm going away and i don't know some people may have thrown tomatoes at it and some people may have tried to rip it down but but that that doesn't worry me i've said what i need to say but just occasionally of course you can't help you just can't help because yeah. you're human going yeah. back and having a look do you feel professionally vulnerable to deplatforming and in, in i mean so of all the games you're playing is is it the kind of thing where you there's something that you're attached to that you could get fired from if you I, said, I, sent the I, wrong tweet? Or? I'm fortunate compared to some of my friends is I know that I've, I've never been handsy. I've never mm. had a history of sexual uh, exhibitionism or bad behavior that will suddenly come to have me clubbed on the head. So that's right. a huge relief because yeah. a lot of people in my position must be thinking, God, that was that time I got. Did I? Did I or didn't I? Did yeah. I? Maybe I did. Yeah. And who knows? But when it and when it comes to past tweets as well, did I once? Yes, I've probably tweeted things. But I suspect because I'm not a politician, 
and I'm, I don't really stand for anything in quite the way that some people do. I can't see myself being, if someone did scavenge all the way back into my tweets and family saying something, ha, you said that, I would, I suspect I'd be, be able to get away with saying, well, I was an idiot. I don't know why mm. I said that. Right. What a moron I was. You must, you know, quite rightly pick, kick me, you know, whatever. I mean, it, it sounds a bit like the arrogant Trump saying I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and I, my supporters would still love me. Oh, yeah, but I don't quite mean I, I, that. Unfortunately, bo both have the virtue of being true. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's absolutely yeah. right. And listen, Sam, is it, as it were, to pinch the loaf of this wonderful conversation, if I felt that the, the, the mindfulness course that I'm in really enjoying, I have to say, I'm uh -huh. getting a huge amount out of it. I'm absolutely staggered by how it works in the literal sense of uh, drawing the mind down into just, I. I think of the upper part of my nose when I breathe that I concentrate on and it immediately triggers me into this state of which is quite a new one for me which first did just send me to sleep but if it does help me as you've intimated earlier much earlier on in our conversation if I can be less offended and upset by attacks on myself or on on a sense of my own that people might be saying bad things about me because I've let them down or mm. all those negative churning emotions which are often to do with Precisely that, that feeling others are judging you or are disappointed in you. If I can separate the, the, the wheat from the chaff in that and, and, you know, not be, not waste my time being yeah. unhappy, then, then that would have been worth everything. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> it's certainly possible. I can't say that I have mastered it, but I can tell you that the, the moments where I'm suffering over something that has come back at me mm. online those are, by definition, moments where I'm not mindful. And mindfulness is actually synonymous with relinquishing that response. It's almost as tangible as discovering that your hand hurts and then recognizing that you've been walking around for the last six hours with a clenched fist and then discovering the ability to just relax, open your hand and relax, right? And the pain goes away. And then in, you know, a few moments later, you'll notice you've got the same pain again. You look down and your fist is clenched again. And then you, you relax yes. it. And yet you have learned, but for whatever reason, you, know, you might have a story to tell about why it's been so useful to have a, a clenched fist yeah. at the ready your whole life. But the reality is, is now you're aware of this fluctuation of pain and its release. And... Every time you're in pain, you look down and you see that clenched fist again, and you now have the capacity to release it. It can take some time. It can take some training to even find your hand, yeah. right? Like your hand is behind your back, and you, it's been years since you've seen it, right? And you, yeah. you know, but it, it can actually become a kind of default, where it's like the moment you become uncomfortable in a certain way, it's a kind of mindfulness alarm that goes off, and, that, and now, you know you, now, you, yeah. now you know you're your own problem, right? The right. problem is no longer the tweet. Well, listen, Stephen, it's been a great joy to get you on the podcast and, and really I'd love an to honor to finally sit down and speak with you. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Instead. I listen to it and I love it and I love everything you're doing. And if I've sounded doubtful and uh, suspicious of, of, of this mindfulness uh, program, believe me, I'm not. I'm enjoying throwing myself into it. It's just rather no, alien it's, to this whole thing. It's been great to thrash this out with you. So, Thanks. really, to be continued. Yeah. You bet. Thanks. Thanks.